just in time. Just in time. Good morning. It's so good to see so many of you. And uh, can I say welcome to summer? June 25th, we're close enough. It is uh, really uh, an honor to be able to open God's Word with you today. Uh, my name is Grant Sylvester. I'm the Connect Pastor here at FAC. And uh, as Rosie mentioned just a few minutes ago, we are going to be continuing in our series entitled Left on Red. And we are uh, looking at the letters of Paul in the New Testament, 13 letters. Two weeks ago, we looked at Romans in 30 minutes. Last week, 1 Corinthians. And uh, today, I have the honor of looking at 2 Corinthians with you. So we're going to dig in there for the next few minutes or so. A number of years ago, there was a blockbuster movie that came out called Unbreakable. It, it starred Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. And the movie begins with a train wreck. A train wreck where no one makes it out, except for one. One person. His name was David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis. And he not only survived the wreck, but he walked away completely unscathed. And instead of being relieved by his good fortune, he's troubled by it. Why was he unharmed? What did that really mean? And into Dunn's life comes this eccentric comic book collector by the name of Elijah, played by Samuel L. Jackson. And he seems equally intrigued by Dunn's survival. Elijah has reason to be interested. He was born with a genetic disorder that left his bones especially brittle. So brittle, in fact, that he is known as Mr. Glass. Dunn, on the other hand, has never broken a bone in his body. Even after years of playing football, he never had a stitch. He never pulled a muscle. He'd never been bruised. He'd never even been sick. And Elijah tells David that he's not like other people and he's been given this extraordinary gift that he cannot keep to himself, but he must employ in the service and protection of other people. And so for the rest of the film, Dunn struggles to understand and accept his remarkable abilities and the destiny that goes with them. He's discovering that he's unbreakable. Now, the film is fiction, of course. It's a comic book fantasy. There are no superheroes walking the streets of our city. We're all quite breakable, actually. And we're a lot more like Mr. Glass than we are Mr. David Dunn. We're fragile. We're susceptible to disease, to accident, to injury, to violence, to germs, to natural disasters. All kinds of things can happen to us in this world that leads to all sorts of questions. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did it happen to someone that I love? Who or, or what is behind all of this? How am I supposed to handle it? How can we afford to reach out to this world when it takes all that we have just to stay healthy and safe ourselves? So we come to Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is very different than 1 Corinthians. Something terrible has happened to Paul, and we feel his pain from the opening lines. 
In this letter, he goes down deeper into sorrow and deeper into hurt and what to do about it than he does anywhere else. And he emerges with a deeper, clearer vision of what it means that Jesus himself suffered for us and with us and that he rose again in triumph. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, I think, unlocks one of the great secrets, one of the great truths of Christian life and ministry to believers here and around the world. God's power is channeled through human weakness. God's power is channeled through human weakness. 2 Corinthians is the most personal of all of Paul's letters and provides for us, I think, a very unique window into Paul's life and ministry. It's also a fairly complex letter. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to to take the time to, to read 2 Corinthians. You can do it in one sitting. It takes about a half an hour at a nice leisurely pace. And friends, as you read it, you'd be hard-pressed not to notice the sudden shifts in the letter, in his tone and emotion, and the constant asides that seem really out of place. The one guiding theme, though, that is weaved throughout this, this, uh, this book is the paradoxical nature of, of the cruciform life. Maybe you've heard this term, maybe you haven't. The cruciform life. It's a life that is shaped by the cross. A life that is shaped by sacrificial love. Sacrificial love for God and for others. And throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul turns upside down our natural expectations of the way life works. Contrary to the the ways of the world, God takes what is low and despised and weak to accomplish his purposes. Second Corinthians is just full of paradoxes. And, I mean, we could run through all the chapters and list so many. Let me just list a few. Comfort through suffering in chapter 1. Sufficiency through insufficiency in chapter 3. Life through death in chapter 4. Blessing through suffering in chapter 6. Boasting through hardship in chapter 11. And then we come to chapter 12, which I think gives us one of the key principles in this entire book. It's in chapter 12 where Paul is is, uh, going before the Lord and asking the Lord to take that thorn in the flesh from him. And the Lord says, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For God's power, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. The Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians after surviving more than a few train wrecks in his life and ministry. It's one of the least familiar of Paul's letters, but I think it really does speak to the harsh realities of life and about the unbreakable faith that sustains us through difficult and dangerous times. It's a book that I think is so relevant for us today. We don't know the particulars, but later in chapter 12, Paul catalogs some of the difficulties that he has encountered during his ministry. 
He's been in prison. He's been flogged. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been robbed. He's starved. He's been abandoned. And Paul is qualified to speak on this subject of hardship. And friends, if it weren't bad enough, some of Paul's critics in Corinth were kicking him while he was down by suggesting that he lacked, he lacked the credentials to be an apostle and that the reason all of these bad things were happening to him was, was just confirmation of God's judgment on his life. And so in response to all this, Paul wrote this letter both to establish his credibility as an apostle and to teach the Corinthians a proper perspective on hardship and suffering. Again, something that I think is so relevant for us today as well. Let me begin by just reading a, a central passage in the book of 2 Corinthians from chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. You can follow along on the screens. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We've been given this treasure in jars of clay. Sir Oliver Franks was a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. He also served as one of the presidents of one of their colleges throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s. He was a man that held many different positions in his career. One of the positions that he held was that of the British ambassador to the United States right after the Second World War, from 1948 to 1952. And uh, right at the time of the Cold War beginning, right at the time that NATO was being set up, and, and as the ambassador, the British ambassador to the U.S., he was in touch often daily with the president on one side of the ocean and the prime minister on the other side. He frequently needed to get urgent top secret messages back and forth between Washington and London. And back in that day, far too risky to uh, use the telephone in all situations because lines were bugged. And so they had this diplomatic bag which went to and fro each day, bringing these confidential documents by air across the Atlantic. And that was the method that was used for most of the important and confidential messages. However, Sir Oliver Franks admitted sometime later, many years later, when something was really, really confidential, utterly top secret, desperately urgent, he wouldn't trust it to that diplomatic bag that everybody knew was important. He would put those documents in an ordinary envelope and send it through the regular mail service. It's pretty incredible. You know, what Paul is saying here is that there is no chance of anyone confusing the content of the envelope with the very, <laughs> the very ordinary, unremarkable envelope itself. The messenger is not important. 
What matters vitally and urgently is the message. The Corinthians have been looking at the envelope. They've been looking at at Paul's own public figure. They've been looking at his speaking style, at the fact that he is in and out of trouble all the time and that he is weak and that he's now near to death. And they have all concluded that there is nothing at all remarkable about this man. He ought to look more important than that, surely, if he really is a messenger with with a message from the living God. No, 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 Paul says. He says, you're missing the point. Precisely because of the vital importance of the message, the messenger must be dispensable. It's like putting treasure in jars of clay. They are fragile, breakable, disposable, but the treasure is what matters. If it were otherwise, the jars might regard themselves as important. The envelope might think that it was actually the letter. And Paul creates this contrast, this this juxtaposition. God has taken this, this great treasure, the life of Christ, and placed it in people like you and people like me who are common and fragile. We're like clay pots. And that seems a little bit odd to me. Maybe it does to you. Why would God store something so valuable in a container so ordinary? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, God displays his life-giving power through us. He displays his life-giving power through us. God stores his treasure in fragile containers like us to display his life-giving power. That way, it is clear that whatever we accomplish is done only by God's power. And from the little we know, Paul himself was not an impressive person. He was not known or he did not have the reputation of being an eloquent speaker. He may have been rather small in stature, and he seems to have had health problems, including poor eyesight. And he was often on the receiving end, friends, of criticism and slander and rejection and persecution. Yet somehow, this is amazing to me, somehow the gospel was spread through him so that the church was established in the then known world. The only explanation was that God must have been at work through him. Doesn't make sense to place something so valuable in a container, so ordinary, so ordinary, unless, of course, you want people to notice the treasure and not the container. Imagine, friends, you're you're having guests over for dinner, and you decide that you're going to make your specialty, you're going to make your chicken casserole, your your chicken cacciatore, whatever, and it's a family recipe, and it's taken you all day to prepare, but these guests are so important, so you're happy to do it. When it comes time for dinner, you bring them around the dinner table, you sit down in the middle of the table, and you bring out your chicken casserole, and you put it there before them all, right at the center of the table, and your guests they all exclaim, wow, look at that serving bowl. Look at that serving dish. That's beautiful. Where did you get that? Is that expensive? It looks really expensive. They never say a word to you about your casserole. Not a word to you about your chicken. Next time you're going to serve it up in a disposable tray, right? So the container doesn't attract any attention at all. 
I know I'm being a little silly, but I think so it is that God pours his life. He pours his life into ordinary containers like you and like me so that people will praise him and focus their attention upon him and not us. We are who we are only because of the treasure we carry within us. The life-giving power of Jesus Christ. Ordinary, ordinary pots we are. So I was preparing for this and I kept thinking about the word ordinary, ordinary. I couldn't help but think of when Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin in in Acts chapter 4. And I think it's verse 13 that says, the people looked at them and said, wow, these are just unschooled, ordinary men. But they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. You know, the harder life gets, I think the more conspicuous and clear the treasure becomes. I think that's an important lesson for us as the church today to understand we don't have to look very far to find teachers, preachers, communicators telling you specifically that God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy at all times. You can surf the net. You can find it on social media. You'll find people that want to tell you that, hey, your life is is strictly about just receiving blessing and success from God. Prosperity and a long and pain-free and lovely life. And friends, there's nothing new about that teaching. There were teachers in Corinth that were saying many of the same things. They called Paul's ministry into question because of the hard things that had happened to him. And and that's why Paul lists some of his credentials for doing ministry, both here in chapter 4 and again in chapter 6 and then down in chapter 11. Let me just read a couple verses from chapter 11. Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am even more. Am I out of my mind to talk like this? I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. And if we were to read many verses in chapter 11, we would read that he's been beaten by rods. He's been flogged 40 times less one. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's been out in the open sea for a full day and a full night. I mean, Paul has been through it. It's a very strange list to me. Instead of highlighting his strengths and accomplishments, instead of saying, let me tell you about the time I met the Lord on the road to Damascus, let me show you my church planting awards, he he doesn't talk about that at all. He lists his difficulties. He lists his disappointments. I mean, could you imagine, friends, applying for a job and saying, hey, I dropped out of college for bad grades, but I did the best I could. Right? I got fired from my, my last two jobs, but I learned a lot. I, I've got a couple of reference letters here. One's from my coach who kicked me off his team, and this one here is from my probation officer. Right? Like, it's the anti-resume. It's an anti-resume, it seems as though, that he's putting together. We go back into chapter 4, and Paul says in verse 8, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair, he continued. In other words, confused, bewildered, stressed, mixed up. 
Some of us can relate to that. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by the complexities of, of life or by some difficult decision that you're completely immobilized, you're, you're frozen? Paul here is perplexed, but he doesn't give in. He goes on in verse 9, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're persecuted, Romans, Jews, false teachers, fellow Christians, criticized and hounded Paul everywhere that he went. We're struck down, but not destroyed, Paul says. Maybe you know how that feels. Maybe you have experienced one setback or defeat after another. Financial trouble, health problems, lost job, family strife that is going on. Paul identifies for sure. Paul and his partners were struck down, stressed out, mixed up, picked on, knocked down. I mean, talk about train wrecks. Paul's experienced it. But they always got back up again. And the world has done its worst to us, but we are still standing, friends. You're here today still standing, not so much because of who we are. We recognize and understand we are a bunch of clay pots, but because, because of the life-giving power of God placed within us. And friends, that power is never so conspicuous, never so clear as when we are going through hard and difficult times. Paul's unusual resume reminds us that God never promises us immunity from the hurts and the hardships of life. If anything, following Christ makes things more complicated and leaves us more vulnerable to hostility it's a heartache. I think the most obvious evidence of the presence of God in our lives isn't that we escape hardship, but that we are able to endure hardship. And if you're feeling hard-pressed, perplexed, picked on, knocked down, it doesn't necessarily mean, friends, that you're doing something wrong. On the contrary, it may very well mean that you're right where you are supposed to be. And you're in good company. We hold to the truth of chapter 12, verse 9, which I've mentioned a few moments ago, that God's grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in weakness. The one other thing I would like to mention today is this. The reason God puts his treasures in jars of clay is to dispense his life-giving power through us. Not just to display it in us, but to dispense it through us, to use it. Jars of clay were meant to be used, not just admired. I have a set of dishes in my house that's been there for, I've had them for about 34 years. And ironically, I'm celebrating my 34th anniversary in about a month. You probably know the dishes that I'm talking about. Those dishes we get when we get married, they're fancy dishes, they're beautiful dishes, but they're dishes that are typically kept behind glass or in a cupboard up high, put away. They come out maybe once a year, 
and maybe if your house was like mine for a number of years, they couldn't go in the dishwasher. <laughs> Anybody relate to that? Hand washed, hand dried, and then put back up, close the cabinet door, never to be seen again. Well, at least for another 364 days. You know, friends, we know that, that God is not looking for fancy, fancy dinnerware. He's looking for rough and used and well-worn clay pots, the kind that can be put into use every day. He's looking, friends, for the kind of pots, the kind of people that don't need to be tucked away in a cabinet, but can be sent out regularly into a hurting and needy world, carrying within them this treasure, the very life of Jesus. And I don't believe the, that the church, I'm sure many, we know this, we don't believe that the church, that we are supposed to be kept in a cabinet behind glass where, where precious pieces could be safely stored out of, harm way, out of harm's way. No, exact, the opposite, exactly. The, the church was meant to be a working kitchen, a working kitchen where well-worn pots are filled again and again to dispense their life-giving contents to a thirsty and hungry world. That's what we're to be about. It's interesting that Paul chooses the phrase in verse 11 of chapter 4 that we are regularly being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And I think that really does describe our mission, that we are to die to ourselves and live for him. It's the same expression that the Gospels use to describe Jesus being turned over to the authorities for flogging and, and crucifixion. In, in the same way that God allowed his son to suffer, he sometimes allows his servants, his children to suffer. When a believer, when a believer loses their job in a bad economy, but responds with trust and perseverance, I believe the life of Christ seeps through. When a Christ follower finds themselves flat on their back in a hospital bed, uncomfortable and uncertain with what the future may hold, yet they bless those around them with their peace and their grace and their faith, I think the life of Christ spills out. When people celebrate a person's life and sing of the joys of heaven at a funeral, the everlasting life of Christ fills the room with its fragrance and aroma. Like the Corinthians, we, we tend to associate the blessing of God with the freedom from pain and hardship. But that's not the case at all, friends. The blessing of God is that in the midst of pain and in the midst of hardship, we continue to trust, we continue to obey, we continue to love, we continue to live out this vibrant, cruciform life of Christ within us. Paul here in 2 Corinthians is reminding himself, reminding the readers, reminding his critics that the ministry of the gospel is not about him. It's not about his speaking ability. It's not about his leadership or his success. It's about Jesus himself. We are just jars of clay. We are clay pots. Jesus is the treasure. That was an important word for the Corinthians for the same reason that I think it's an important word for us today. In chapter 11, the Corinthians were creating a, a culture of celebrity, a culture of celebrity around some of their leaders. They called them super apostles. 
You can go to chapter 11. That's what, that's what it says. The, these so-called super apostles, these, these super apostles, they were concerned about which was the most eloquent, which one of them would attract the largest following, which one of them was recognized by society then for being the most powerful, the most successful, the most uh, attractive. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I know I'm susceptible to that. I make those same kind of judgments from time to time today. Friends, again, jars of clay are not meant to be displayed on pedestals for people to be able to admire. Jars of clay are common, ordinary objects meant to be used for his service. That's what it's about. It's the treasure within them that deserves our attention, our undivided attention and focus. Our fragility only serves to make the beauty of the gospel more conspicuous and clear. And yet, friends, I know that that's hard for us to do. It's hard for me to do. It's hard to put ourselves out there to walk in our weaknesses, to walk in our insecurities, to walk in our pain and in our suffering But we're called to risk. We're called, friends, to to step out in faith. If we're going to see God move in power, we must step out. And maybe one of the reasons we don't hear or see too often of the stories of the hand of God in our lives is because we live with such extraordinary control over the circumstances of our life. I do this more than I want to admit. We do everything in our power. We work hard. We have gone to school. We've gotten the right jobs. We've tried to be good with our finances. We've designed this perfectly safe little life that we can control. And then we are up in our head a little bit. And we don't know if we really believe in God. And we say, God, where are you in my life? In all honesty, friends, maybe we haven't even given God a chance. I like what writer John Mark Comer said. He said, God comes to us in our vulnerabilities. He comes to us in our pain. He comes to us in our sufferings. When we are stripped of control, when we are no longer the captain of our ship and the master of our destiny, when we are humans, broken, weak, desperate, and in need, You meet people like that, and they're not up in their heads wondering if they believe in God. They're full in their hearts telling of the stories of the power of God in their life. Friends, I think there is a relationship between our level of faith and our level of vulnerability and risk and our experience of God. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and I believe he's reminding us, that God values humility. He values us right where we are, even in our weakness. He values our sacrificial service, all of which were made known most clearly through the incarnation, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we approach our time in just a moment or two around the communion uh, elements, Paul is calling us to conform our lives 
to the great paradox of the cross, following Jesus' example and, and allowing his cruciform way of life to become our very own, which is only possible, only possible through the power and presence of his spirit who lives within us. Here again, the words of chapter 12, verse nine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, may we claim that and walk in that reality today. As we prepare for communion, I, I wanna leave us with some words from Paul in the final chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse five, where Paul says, examine yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are, are in the faith. So friends, let's take a few moments right now to, to do just that, quiet reflection, some self-examination. If you did not receive the elements on the way in, ushers are there, are here, and if you just wanna give a wave, they will get those elements to you. Online, you might wanna prepare for communion as well. But let's just take a few moments now of, of examination and quiet reflection, and then I will lead us uh, the rest of the way. On the night that um, Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and be thankful. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Allow me just to pray and then we will partake of the elements together. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace that is sufficient. Lord, we acknowledge today that you are all that we need. And we respond by giving you our very lives, giving you our full and undivided attention for your service and for your honor. In your name we pray. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus broken for you. Let's take and eat together.
and the blood, the blood of our Lord Jesus shed for you. Let's take and drink together to the King.